You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. Welcome to the Wake and Walking ICU podcast. I can tell that we have a lot of new listeners and I am thrilled. I invite all of you to start from the very beginning at episode one to make sure that you don't miss invaluable stories and insights that bring context and understanding for these recent episodes. Just listen to them all. I have recently done a webinar with the critical care department of a large hospital system Some of the wonderful questions asked were how to bring these changes to their ICUs. This is such an important inquiry that I personally cannot speak to. I stepped into a very established culture in the awake and walking ICU. In this unit, it was established by Polly Bailey almost 30 years ago. Her story is told in episode two and 21. Yet there are pioneers around the country and world that are advocating for elevated evidence-based practice and more humane care in the ICU. We will be hearing their stories in coming episodes. This episode, we have with us Heidi Ingle, an extremely seasoned ICU physical therapist with a powerful perspective. She allowed herself to dream of a more humane culture in her ICU and has elevated her team's practices throughout the years. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background. Well, thank you for having me, Kaylee. I listen to your podcast while I'm walking to work, walking to the ICU, and I I get so much out of it. I I get inspired by um, all that you provide to the the patients there. Uh, My background, I thought I would be a physical therapist for about five years after I graduated with a bachelor's in physical therapy because that's what the degree was when I went to college in the 1980s. And here I am 33 years later, still a practicing physical therapist. Um, So I fell in love with what I had to do and particularly working with people who are critically ill. I established the ICU Early Mobility Program in our medical ICU. I started that project in 2008, and I started it because uh, a patient and family member were adamant that um, they should get be awake and move, even though they were attached to a ventilator, and they were my inspiration and I think the patients and the family have just kept me going against multiple barriers and with a lot of hard work in this collaborative project to to have our patients be awake and and mobile in the ICU um, since 2008. So I work full-time as a physical therapist in our medical and surgical ICUs primarily and I work in a large academic medical center where we have a transplant services of all sort and a lot of tertiary care. 
So we tend to very sick patients and um, it's been incredibly rewarding to be able to work with my colleagues in respiratory therapy um, and nursing and of course physicians and pharmacy as well um, to, help, to help patients wake up and move. So I'm trying to think back to 2008 and what the culture was like back then. Everyone was deeply sedated, mm-hmm. nobody moved. Mm-hmm. What drove that patient and or the family members to even envision their loved one being awake and walking at that time? And what yeah. was that like for you to imagine that against everything you'd ever known? So at that time, uh, the way my job worked is I was service-based. And so I was on the liver transplant service and the hematological oncology services. And those are services that obviously deliver patients to the ICU fairly frequently. And so I would follow those patients into the ICU from the floor, or sometimes I'd even receive a consult to do physical therapy with one of those patients in the ICU. And this really was, I'm talking about 2006, 2007. And I'd walk into the ICU and I would look around and I wouldn't understand the equipment. And I was very intimidated. And the nurse would just look at me and say, I don't know why you're here. And I'd say, I don't know why I'm here either. And they'd say, okay, do you want to do passive range of motion? And I'd say, you can do that. And they'd say, right. And I'd go away. And it just felt wrong. It just seemed like there has to be something I could, I could do for these patients. And so this gentleman was a nurse, not from this country. And his wife was a nurse and his sister was a nurse. They were all nurses. And I don't know, honestly, I cannot say why. They just felt like it, they were, none of them were critical care nurses. So maybe they didn't realize what the equipment was about, but there he was in the ICU. He'd been lying there for a while. He had a liver transplant with multiple, multiple complications. And that's why he was still in the ICU uh, on the ventilator. And, but he was awake because of his liver transplant. The liver team was reluctant to give him sedating drugs and his encephalopathy. And they just wanted to wake him up and get this moving. Uh, So he was awake. His family was at the bedside. I had a consult because they had badgered the doctor to write it. And the nurse said, I don't think that's a good idea. He has an ET tube down his throat and his family was waving me into the room. Um, and he did incredibly well. I said, I looked at the patient and he looked terrific. He was awake. His vital signs were fine. And I asked him, would you like to get out of bed? And he nodded his head and I had never even seen anything like this before. And so I thought, well, he's willing and his family's willing to help me and let's just do this. It seems to make sense. He did fantastic. And uh, as a result, I could not get him and his family out of my mind. And I went to the liver transplant fellow and I said, I think this gentleman did so great because we actually got him up moving while he was still in the ICU. And the liver transplant fellow said, I think you're absolutely right. And I said, 
I think we need some sort of regular mobility program in the ICU. And he said, yes. And I said, you should start that. And he said, no, I'm a fellow. I'm leaving in a year. You're here all the time. You get it started. And I thought, but I'm just a physical therapist. How can I, how can I create change in the entire hospital for what all these people are doing? And in the ICU, physical therapists take orders. We don't start programs. Um, but he really encouraged me and I did some research. The only thing that was published that was very compelling um, came from LDS Medical Center in Salt Lake City. And they had pictures of people up walking on a ventilator. And I did not even know this was possible. I, I thought that was impossible. And I just looked at these photos in these studies of people up walking in the ICU on the ventilator. And I said, wait a minute, if you can do this with these patients, why aren't, why aren't we doing this? Why are they all lying in bed sedated? So yeah, the culture very much at the time was the patients on the ventilator, what they really need is to be kept very still and left alone, maybe pass the range of motion, deep sedation, and then they'll come off the vent. And the idea behind it was that this was the most compassionate thing you could do, that being in the ICU and on the ventilator was so traumatic that they would not want to have a memory of it and their bodies really needed to, to be in a full state of, of, of rest. And Kaylee, I have to say that to this day, I hear the word sleep used for sedating patients. I hear it from the nurses. I hear it from the doctors when they talk to the families. Oh, we're, we're putting him back to sleep now. Oh, he's really sleeping now. She's really sleeping now. Oh. And I will tell those practitioners you're, no, don't say sleep. It's, this is not sleep. This is sedation. They are very different things. I mean, I think it, one of the best ways we could change the culture in the ICU is to stop using the word sleep when what we really mean is sedation. Mm -hmm. um, very different. They have a very different impact on the brain. And I think if a family member heard okay, we're now sedating him again, goodbye, on the phone, instead of, okay, I'm putting him, you know, back into sleep again. I think that families would hold us more accountable to what we do, and I think families are incredibly compelling advocates for the patients. Yeah, I think that's completely true. I think if family members really knew what their loved ones were experiencing, they would have a totally different level of advocacy. And if we as clinicians understood, um, okay, I'm now going to put them into delirium. I'm now gonna put them in a world of terror and trauma, bye-bye. It would completely change how often and how long and how deeply we sedate people. It would completely change how quickly we are or how quick we are to grab the propofol. Yes, I hear it called the sleepy medicine. I hear in, in little high-pitched voices, people refer to it as we're putting the sleepy medicine back on them now. And it, it makes me cringe. 
because while the patient on the outside looks placid and calm and as if they were sleeping, so we understand the analogy. On the inside, when you talk to the patients after they wake up, they're having horrific hallucinations of being terrorized, tortured, drowning. Um, in the phenomenological research that's done in Scandinavia, and it's very compelling research to read, they interview patients and they receive pretty consistent reports of sensations of drowning. Mm. Uh, I felt like I was drowning. I felt like I was deep underwater. Um, and it was very distressing and it was very real. So, you know, in a way, if you wanted a more accurate analogy, perhaps you would say, I'm going to shove them back underwater now. Talk to you later. <laughs> I'm going to take away any opportunity to explain to them what's going on and allow them to understand reality and cope. Yeah. And, and, I, and I encourage everyone to, um, to look at some of the phenomenological research that's published from the people in Denmark in particular. Um, it, it's very compelling interviews with, with patients and it's done in very systematic and, and thorough ways. Um, we can add a link to that research on our blog. Yeah, let's, let's do it. And, um, you know, that's why Thomas Strom, who works in Denmark, that's what his research has been. He also was someone whose initial research was very inspiring to me because it's about the no sedation ICU. He was one of the first people to publish something that said no sedation ICU. And what else has changed your perspective or even your understanding and practice with early mobility? Uh, the patients and the families are empowered. And I think one of the most, there are two gifts we give to patients in the ICU when we wake them up and mobilize them. And when I initially got started and I would have my first early sessions of mobility where all the patient could really tolerate well is perhaps sitting on the edge of the bed for a little while. Um, and then they would be exhausted. I initially thought, I don't even know if I'm doing anything worthwhile here. But there's something about the early investment gets you the greatest return. That I have learned over and over again that the earlier I can get to see our critically ill patients, and obviously they have to go through a period of some initial stabilization, but that should be days and not weeks. And the earlier and consistent investment of mobility gets us the best returns. So we have been able to have planned consented tracheotomies canceled because we instead chose to consistently, intensively mobilize the patient. We have patients leave the ICU and go out to the floor and the step down floor 
nurse anticipates this patient came from the ICU, they're going to be a max assist transfer to a chair, they're going to be um, delirious, cognitively impaired, and we've accepted that as a norm, which is crazy. Uh, and instead, we have our patients come out of the ICU and they hit the call button and they say to the nurse, I need to go for a walk now. And the nurse says, oh, let me get someone to help me. And they say, no, I can do it. Just hand me that walker over there. I love it. Yeah, we can send patients home. We can empower patients to advocate for themselves and their ability to return home. We can help them overcome so much learned passivity that we drum into them. Um, yeah, so the, the early investment gets a much greater return than I anticipated it would. And it's still true with, with COVID-19 as, as well. Yeah, and the COVID-19 patients are so much like our classic ARDS patients. Um, and you define early as in within a few days. Um, but that's not the standard definition across the board. Can you talk to us a bit, a little bit about some of our subjectivity when we use the terms early mobility? Subjectivity, so there's no clear definition of early mobility, either in terms of when it should start. Uh, prior to COVID-19, based on what the evidence said, I presented the definition as within 48 hours of the patient's admission to the ICU because in what is published out there and the quality of the research is not great and not a large number of, of, um, of enrolled participants in these studies. But what the research has shown is that timing matters and earlier is, is better and the, the studies with the most compelling results were ones where they started early mobility within 48 hours of the patient's admission to the ICU. So when I started our ICU early mobility program uh, and we, we went full steam ahead starting in 2010, uh, that was the goal to initiate physical therapy for our ICU patients, at least two thirds of everyone in the ICU and have that be within 48 hours of their admission. COVID-19 has disrupted the timing substantially. And I understand that that's true across many medical centers. Um, and, and it's alarming to me. Uh, but we are now starting to mobilize our COVID-19 patients more like weeks into their intubation as opposed to, to days. Um, and I haven't, haven't figured out how we're going to fix that yet. And how do you see that impacting their outcomes? Uh, the, the rate, the delirium and the extent of the delirium is more profound, the delirium especially. Um, obviously the levels of, of, of weakness and um, it, it's all more pronounced. The one thing 
and this is why I don't, I don't know how we're going to end up getting around it. I mean, the one thing that's incredibly gratifying about the COVID-19 population in particular that's different than what I've seen in the past with our other ARDS patients is they make giant leaps and bounds forward in their progress uh, once you do start mobilizing them. So once they are medically stable, once they really are not needing the ventilator anymore or they're extubated, um, they make fast progress, like nothing I've ever seen, which is, is great. The problem with that is I think that everyone sees that and it just reinforces all the prolonged deep sedation that we're doing out of the compassion thought of it has to be done for that way and that long in order to protect the lungs. So part of the lung protective ventilation strategy has involved keeping folks on very low tidal volumes um, and waiting for the lungs to clear. And that's also involved deep sedation. But I, I think we still struggle with determining when to, when to change that process, when to be able to switch up what we're doing, have the patient more awake, um, allow them to, to initiate more breaths on their own. Uh, it's taking us longer to reach that point than we had in the past. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fear involved. Um, in episode 14, I talked about the wake and walk in ICU and um, how some of our protocols are not um, validated in research because um, we don't have a control group and it's hard for other places to research what they don't do. Um, so we walk people in higher vent settings. I mean, even to FiO2 of 100%, PEEP of 18, you know, higher settings, but as long as they're oxygenating, we're rolling because it gets their lungs better quicker, as well as maintains their strength and um, their cognitive function and all the things that we know um, need to happen while someone's on the ventilator. But it is hard and it's scary in other places to try something new, to do something that's not in the evidence or research yet. Um, and yet we have all this research showing that it's so harmful to keep them immobilized and deeply sedated for so long. And yet here we are with these patients in severe respiratory distress and failure um, in the masses and our resources are stretched. And so we reverted back to those practices that we know causes long-term long harm. And we're already seeing these patients coming out in the masses with PTSD, cognitive deficits, um, and having severe disability even so quickly after um, their hospitalization. So I, I don't know how, I think every unit is different. Every culture within the unit is different. Protocols are already different. I know that in the wake and walk in ICU, we already had a culture where mobility was normal. It is normal. And so the alterations have been minor because we already had such a strong system focused on keeping people functional and strong during the critical illness. Um, and so I know that it is possible 
because we're seeing it and people are being discharged straight home. They're walking out of the ICU. Yet there is a spectrum. Sometimes people do have to be paralyzed and prone for much longer. And that, of course, is a huge setback. And so not every patient is the same. There's not one mold fits all, especially for every unit and staffing ratios and capacity. And yet, even with COVID-19, it is possible to optimize these outcomes. Um, what kind of barriers are you seeing in your, in your practice or in, in your facility to optimizing your role as a physical therapist, even before and now during COVID-19? Sedation has always been uh, the, the biggest barrier. Uh, sedation, and, and I have to say, uh, the ARSNET protocol is a, a very specific protocol and we don't want to deviate from it. And it's been challenging to figure out how we can maintain utilizing the ARDSNET protocol as a way to protect the patient's lungs, but still also allow them to receive what they need from the ventilator to allow for activity comfortably. Because obviously, if you're lying in bed and all of the ARDSNET research initially was done on patients simply lying in bed um, and sedated. So that's a very different state of being than awake and walking down the hallway. That means the ventilator will need to be changed to accommodate the different way the person's going to be breathing. And uh, the protocol doesn't, doesn't specify anything for that. The ARSNET research was done all on the practice of keep people in bed and sedated. So I need a new I need a new ARDSNET protocol. And when you're mobilizing, allow the ventilator to be transitioned to this or allow for a you know marginal increase in tidal volume. Maybe instead of six milliliters per kilogram, it's going to now be, you know, nine will be allowable because they're walking down the hall. So something, so when it, you're in an institution that adheres very tightly to that protocol, because that protocol did changes from damaging lungs with the ventilator in, in the 1990s to now having people with good lung function after the ventilator is taken away and allowing us to take away the ventilator sooner than in the past. Now we need, you know, just like they've, updated the sepsis guidelines, we also need an ARDSNET update guideline so that it accommodates for the awake and walking down the hall patient. Please direct people to turn off the sedation and allow for this type of tidal volume and respiratory rate and to have the vent set on something different so the patient is capable of getting up and walking down the hall. Uh, sedation has always been in a barrier and at our institution we had gotten pretty good um, about we had really eliminated um, the, the use of the benzodiazepines which are the most deliriogenic sedating agents so I hardly ever saw anyone prior to COVID uh, on on the benzodiazepines on on Versed. Um, and now it's back. 
and I can't, I just can't believe it's back. Some of it is back because we take transfers from outside hospitals and if a patient comes in having received weeks of a benzodiazepine drip, you can't, you're stuck. You can't suddenly take it away. They'll go into severe withdrawal. Um, but some of it is just in, in order to achieve a deep enough level of sedation um, for the COVID patients. So yes, sedation has always been the greatest barrier. Uh, it, is, it is not sleep, as I hear it being referred to frequently by providers. Um, and I think it's the word sleep is used when we are genuinely just sedating someone, which is something very different from sleep. Your, your brain does not react to sedation nearly in the same way as it reacts to sleep. As sedation is very um, deliriogenic, it creates hallucinations for the patient, and sleep obviously is restorative and, and restful. And so when we use the term sleep, if we, if we tell family members uh, the patient is sleeping now or we're, we're putting the medication back on to, to help the patient sleep or to let them sleep again, um, I think we're providing information that, that sounds very comforting and reassuring uh, but I think we should be more specific and accurate in, in what's being done, which is sedation. It's not sleep. So I, I, think, I think if we could detach all the compassionate good intention and euphemism we apply to sedation, maybe it would become less of a, a barrier. Um, but I can't, I can't mobilize someone who is RAS minus three or RAS minus four, and generally no one even really necessarily expects me to or wants me to, to try. My expectation and what I've always said is, uh, I wanna stop talking about ICU early mobility uh, and rename it ICU early walking. That is the standard I've tried to, adhere to in our program and to teach to anyone who, who comes and works in physical therapy in our ICU. Our goal is this patient's going to get up and walk. Uh, our goal is not that this person's gonna sit on the edge of the bed for a few minutes and then I put them back. Uh, when we did the ICU liberation collaborative, which was 60 different ICUs from across the country, we asked people to keep very specific data collections on which elements of the A through F bundle they were able to accomplish, the mobility levels, and this was a year and a half program where people um, had to apply to the program to be accepted. They received a lot of teaching and a lot of mentoring. And through that program, folks really improved their delirium assessment and their pain assessment and decreasing their levels of sedation, but mobility levels still remained extraordinarily infrequent and extraordinarily low in intensity. And just like all the research all around the world has, has demonstrated, very few of the patients are getting out of bed and walking a lot of the activity still remains bed level. And 
there's a there's a wide range of problems with keeping the activity and the definition of early mobility as as bed level exercise. And you have toured the awake and walking ICU. And it sounds like that's the vision that you have for your ICU, that it be early walking, that be the standard. What what impedes that from being the standard? So sedation, um, can you speak to the role of the physical therapist, staffing ratios? What else impedes that progress? The awake and walking ICU, I observed had an entirely different way of managing the ventilator and delivering sedation to the patients uh, than I have seen in, in any research in any other of the ICUs I've been to. Um, so, and it's, it's, we've done a great job of normalizing mobility at our ICU. We receive we have traveler nurses who come from, you know, work experience in a lot of different other, other different places. And they will say, wow, you know, I've, I've never been in an ICU that mobilizes patients this much or to this extent. Um, and yet we don't look like what I observed in the awake and walking ICU. Um, I think what, what the awake and walking ICU has achieved is uh, that everyone has determined that the patient to be out of bed or walking down the hall is just completely normal practice. There's nothing unusual about it. There's nothing extraordinary about it. It's just part of the patient's day. It's part of what needs to get done. It's on the same level as delivering their antibiotic medication. It's on the same level as toileting. It's just another thing that has to be included in the patient's day. And we, we are not there yet. And there is a great deal of skepticism about that the patients can tolerate to be awake that the patients can um, have the ventilator changed to accommodate how different they need to be able to breathe if they're up walking down the hall versus lying still in bed. So we're working on it, but culture barriers and then and then experience. You know, when when what you know is an inner body that looks like they're peacefully sleeping and, and resting, you feel like you're delivering the most um, comfortable, compassionate sorts of care. When you have to go through the process of waking someone up who is unsure what's going on, confused, especially if they're young and they have strength, and the last thing they knew is they perhaps passed out in their apartment, now they're waking up in an ICU, tubes shoved down the throat, can't talk, hands tied to a bed rail, um, strange sounds, sensations of pain, discomfort. You know, obviously when that person is first waking up, if that's all they know, they're going to panic, 
their vital signs are going to change dramatically. They're going to overbreathe the ventilator. They're going to get anxious. Um, they, they're going to start fighting and thrashing. And if we treat that with sedation, all we're doing is creating more harm to the person and more distress. If we can go in and adapt the ventilator to the patient's needs, sit them up, have them open their eyes, let them look around, let them explain to them what all the equipment is, explain to them what happened. Um, we are making a fantastic early investment that will give you uh, a person at the other end who goes home and lives their life again instead of yay they survived okay they're disabled but that's because they were so deeply sick which seems to be the outcome we are accepting of and it, it, it might look good as a data point it might look good to us because we don't follow them home from the icu but if you speak to the patients it's it's terrible to enter the hospital as a walking working functioning person with a whole life story around you and to then uh leave as a, as a disabled human being and it is so conflicting for someone like you that deeply cares and you know that it didn't have to happen that way you know that there's a better way to do it that we can truly preserve people's function and livelihoods and quality of life and so i hear you on twitter i saw you on twitter and i see in your your tweets that you have so much fire and passion for this and so much indignation when people have outcomes that didn't have to happen um what what is that like for you and how do you work with the staff and when have you had moments in which there was hesitation or doubt, but you helped your team work through that and you saw success in your patients? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't think I have really um, been the driving force to, to convince people this is the best thing to do for the patients. I, I really and truly believe that the patients and the families uh, have, have done the work for me and I've just been a willing participant to go in and take the risk uh, and, and give it a try. And I, you know, I often say when I give presentations, so here I am, I've been a physical therapist for 33 years and I will still read a medical chart and I will still go to the bedside and look at a patient and I will still think, this is just not gonna work. They're too sick, they're too heavy, they're too crazy, they're too, you know, there's just all these barriers to why uh, this is a good idea. And I, I push myself past it because I know now from experience that if I push past that internal dialogue I'm having with myself that this is just can't work, and I give it a try, that, very often, nine times out of 10, the patient surprises me because they greatly surpass my expectations. And I think, I think we need to empower the patients to be people first 
And I think we need to give them credit for understanding what is going on with their bodies and what is not, and for wanting to participate in being awake and understand what's going on with their care. So I think we, I think we have too much of an, an almost um, paternalistic attitude towards, towards patients in general, and that we create a lot of learned helplessness in, a, in, our, in our patients. Um, it's much easier to empower them and allow, allow them to be engaged in their, in their care. And, and ultimately, you can see that when you just quiet the voices inside your head that tell you this is not going to work. Go in and try, understanding that if the patient does start to decompensate while you're getting them up moving, um, you lie them back down. You stop the treatment. You have your colleagues together with you. I, as a physical therapist, cannot perform ICU mobility by myself or as a consult service. It is absolutely a multi-professional team sport. I rely heavily on our fantastic, extraordinary respiratory therapists who go in and manage the ventilator and do the suctioning while I'm moving the patient so I can focus all my energies on optimizing the mobility of the patient and optimizing their willingness to participate, their trust in us to do this, their motivation level, and, and, and empower the patient, you know, have them be active participants in their care, and then at the same time learn who they are as people uh, so we can inspire them to return to their life story and, and the things that bring meaning and, and purpose to their lives. So in order for me to focus on that, you know, I need the helping hands of the nurse to minimize sedation, but treat pain adequately, to manage presser medications if the patient requires presser medications, um, and to maybe give you an extra set of hands uh, or to manage the lines. We have a lot of patients on continuous renal replacement therapy, and we have a protocol that allows the nurse to disconnect the renal replacement therapy for two hours to allow for patient mobility. So we might need to schedule the nurse to take the patient off of the continuous renal replacement therapy. And then we might need to schedule the uh, respiratory therapist to manage and switch over the vent. And they need to change the vent settings. So the physician needs to have an order set that allows the respiratory therapist to, to change the ventilator's parameters to make the work of breathing uh, less stressful for the patient while they're exercising. And then the patient can walk down the hall and my energies can all be focused on movement and motivation and returning this person to their personhood um, while my colleagues work on the medical management of the equipment. And the, and the patient's hemodynamic stability. And I love that aspect of physical therapy that I've been learning about through this podcast and interviewing physical therapists is that you truly see these people as humans. I think sometimes there's so much going on in the ICU and I think it's really easy to see a diagnosis, 
specific organs, um, procedures that need to be done. But physical therapists come in and say, who were they as a person as a whole? What were they doing before and have the vision to return them to that? And I think incorporating that aspect and that perspective into our interdisciplinary collaboration is invaluable. Um, you tweeted a really cool story about a patient that cried when she got in the chair. Do you mind sharing that with us? Uh, I'm trying to remember which story it was. Um, you asked if she was in pain, I think. Yeah, we've had, you know, we've had so many patients. Um, it's, it's, it's fantastic to, to, to talk to the patients after, um, after they're leaving the ICU. So after they're extubated, once they can talk to you, uh, to ask them about their experience of mobility, they say the most profound things. Uh, and, and that genuinely keeps me going back to do the very hard work of, of the, initial, the initial therapy sessions. Because the, the initial therapy sessions can be tense. We don't know how this person is going to react really. We don't know if hemodynamically they will remain completely stable uh, throughout the session. Um, but we should be obligated to, to give it a try. And it's messy, it's ugly. I understand where the sedated patient lying in bed with their eyes closed and all the equipment neatly tucked in around them. I, I get it, I get why that looks better. From the outside, that seems like this is a, a compassionate relaxation we're providing. Um, and that thing where you're first getting them up moving and they're panicking and they're maybe getting agitated, um, that looks really messy and hard and awful. It is sometimes messy. It is difficult. It is not awful at all. The, the patients, and, and typically the patients, like the woman you are referring to, they're, it's not like they're athletes and they're saying, thank God you're letting me exercise again. These are folks very often that lead, you know, pretty normal lives, not moving especially much. They're leading the average, somewhat sedentary American life. Um, and they are still so grateful for, for the aspect of, of moving. Um, recently, I had the opportunity to, to speak to one of our COVID patients who'd been in the ICU for a long time. And she was an older woman who was, was heavy. Uh, heavy set, and she um, is not someone who you know really had a a pre morbid desire to move or walk or exercise a lot. And but what she said to me is she said, "I will never forget those first times that you that you helped me up because I really felt like." I was myself again. I really felt like I could breathe again. Oh, you know what? Now I'm remembering this story about the woman who got in the chair for the first time and cried. The woman who got in the chair for the first time and cried. Oh, yes. She was someone who had uh, cancer that had gone 
all over her spinal cord. So she had a very rare, very specific type of tumor that invaded her spinal cord and required very complicated neurosurgery to cut tumors off the space next to her spinal cord. So she had become really quadriplegic in the process of these tumors growing around her spinal cord. Um, and I think she was pretty much convinced she would be living the life of a quad. But once they did the neurosurgery and started treating the cancer, she was getting neurologic return. Uh, and so after weeks of really being very dependent in her mobility and in bed, uh, she was still on the ventilator, but we, yeah, we stood her up, we got her over to the chair, and it was her first time in the chair, and this is literally after, I think, a month in bed with all the complicated neurosurgery and cancer treatment and the quadriplegia from the tumors. Um, and the ventilator and the, and the ARDS she'd had. And, uh, but she got to the chair and she was able to write. She could still, she could hold a pencil and she could write on a, on a clipboard. And when she started crying, we were afraid that she was crying because she was in too much pain. So we handed her the clipboard right away and said, what's wrong? And she wrote on the clipboard, I'm so grateful to be in the chair. I'm so thankful to to be up. Um, yeah, and I I receive that message from patients over and over and over. One last thing, one other thing I would like to mention, Kaylee, is we uh, teach a course. I don't teach a course. The respiratory therapist, clinical specialist teach uh, the medical residents a kind of mechanical ventilation 101. And we send our physical therapists to that course when we can, who are gonna be working in the ICU. And what's great about this course is the, you can try being on the ventilator. So the respiratory therapist sets up the vent and the circuit and you plug your nose and you hold the circuit in your mouth and you're essentially feeling the sensation of mechanical ventilation. And I have our physical therapists lie down while they're on the vent. And then I ask them to sit up while they're still on the vent. And then I interview them and I say, okay, how did it feel lying down? And these are healthy, normal, working in the hospital physical therapists. And they all say, oh, it really gave me a sensation of anxiety. It really gave me a sensation of distress. And then I say, and how did it feel to sit up? And they say, very initially, that also felt distressing and uncomfortable. But really within 30 seconds to a minute, I realized and understood that it felt much easier to breathe sitting up than it did lying down on the ventilator. And that is what our patients say, right? Mm -hmm. They say, thank you so much. I can finally breathe because mm -hmm. physiologically we know the lungs can expand better when we're upright versus laying down. Um, but we forget that when someone's on the ventilator and we trust that the ventilator will do all the work. And yet it is still so distressing for them to be in a compromised position that they don't have to be in all the time. Yeah, 
I mean, that's why we're proning patients, right? Because lying on your back is the worst position you can be in to actually open up all the alveoli and diffuse oxygen to all the various parts of your lungs. Now that's a great practice. And I think nurses, residents, doctors, APPs, everyone should feel what it's like to be on a ventilator. But I love that you would have them do both positions. Um, and that can give us greater empathy and greater reason to get people up. Mm -hmm. Again, that's all part of changing the paradigm, changing our perspective and our under understanding of what patients are experiencing. Um, mm -hmm. I am so grateful for all of your advocacy and all of your good experience and work. Um, how do we better mentor our community and who have been your mentors throughout this process of evolution? How do we better mentor our community? Uh, I think we're, we're doing that effectively as best we can with icudelirium.org, with patient testimonial. Um, I would love to see, now that COVID, it's, it's pretty interesting, right? To, to having been an ICU practitioner for as long as we have, and you know now all of a sudden it's not uncommon to hear people talking about ventilators on the radio or on the news or reading it in the newspaper or to hear the term ARDS be something that you see in a popular press newspaper article. So we have gained some attention due to COVID-19 of more of the popular media and I think that's very good. I've been disappointed in the tone of it at times because it's focused solely on the disabling aspects or the ventilator shortages or um, it, I would love to hear much more emphasis in the popular press. And I'm hoping more of the, the great articulate leaders in our field, such as Dr. Wes Ely or Dr. Dale Needham, um, or Polly Bailey, uh, the nurse practitioner. I, I, would, I would love some of those very articulate, many years of experience leaders in our field to, to be able to, to have a greater voice in the popular press and not just in our medical communities um, to advocate for the awake and walking patient in the ICU and the incredible difference that makes in the patient's life for years, years and years going forward. Um, because I, I feel like the, the, the doom and gloom side of being an ICU patient or having been a patient during a COVID-19 surge, that's now in the popular press. But let's also talk about what can what can help restore someone's life. Let's 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 spotlight some of the the positive aspects of critical care that everyone should know about because chances are someone you know can end up in the ICU now due to the the COVID nineteen virus. Um, and you never would have expected that in the past. And when your loved one does go into the ICU, uh, what are some things you might want to talk about and advocate with the practitioners? 
I, I do think it's going to be a similar experience to what I've noticed in our ICU and in, in speaking to groups across the country in that the compelling patient stories and the family testimonials of how vital it is to be awake and, and moving as, as a critically ill patient, how vital that is. I think especially if that can get into the popular press, the regular CNN programs and the 60 Minutes programs and the CBS Sunday Morning or you know, any of the very mainstream um, popular press, the New York Times, Washington Post, let's get these publications to start talking about this aspect of critical care now that they're talking about critical care anyway. In terms of my own personal mentors, um, Polly Bailey, the nurse practitioner at Intermountain, uh, was an incredible source of, of inspiration, not, not just to me, but also to, um, to Dr. Dale Needham at Johns Hopkins, who everyone knows is kind of the, the world leader in ICU early mobility. Um, for everything he's done, all the research and, and all the advocacy he's done. Um, but, but Polly is the inspiration behind the inspiration. So I have to mention her and I have to encourage people to, to read her 2003 article about the walking that she achieved in, in their ICU. And she um, has a great interview on episode, I think it's, let's see, I think it's uh, where is it? Episode 21, Polly tells her story, which is, yeah, completely inspirational. Mm -hmm. And she was very alone and very visionary um, for her time. And even still. She was, and I will never forget her saying that she would show up and present her mobility results and achievements at conferences and people would call her a liar. Hmm. Um, so. She has faced so much opposition in her career, um, yes. but has been extremely driven by, by what she's seen and what she's done. She's seen patients walk out of the ICU as a standard. And in the end, she's only cared about what's been best for the patients. And that has inspired me, even doing this podcast, because I know that these are hostily controversial topics because it goes against the grain of our culture. But Polly's inspired me because that's what she has done her whole career. She's done something that's been very different, very against the grain, and yet the best thing for patients because she just cares about people. And so that's what's driven me as well. And so I'm, it's exciting to hear someone else <laughs> that's received the same kind of validation from Polly's work. Yeah, I mean, Margaret, you know, I think if you ask Dale Needham what some of his early inspirations were, I'm pretty sure he would agree that um, Margaret Herridge, the pulmonologist out of Toronto, Canada, and all her great groundbreaking research on the disability we were mm -hmm. causing in patients as a result of our critical care practices, and Polly Bailey, I, I'm pretty sure Dale would mention both of those women. Um, but then I, I have to mention Dale myself because 
in the early phases of our program, it was only the very generous sharing of information and data from, from Dale Needham at Johns Hopkins that compelled uh, people at my institution to, to think about us changing our practice. And, and then I, I can't say enough about, you know, everyone finds West, Dr. West Ely at Vanderbilt and his, all his colleagues at Vanderbilt in their, um, in their delirium research and their critical illness brain injury center that they have now and all the research they're doing, um, Brenda Pun and um, the folks there at Vanderbilt have been extraordinarily inspiring very similar to, um, I mean, the, the groundbreaking work that Wesley Lee done is phenomenal, but he also brings what you just mentioned about Polly, a level of compassion and drive towards um, restoring the humanity of, of the patients is, is being his central motivation. And he's been an incredible source of inspiration for me too. Yeah, there's so many wonderful, and deeply compassionate people in our field that have really dedicated their careers to changing the ICU community and culture and practices that we can learn from. And so I will put more links um, to some of this research on the blog so that we can all read and really have access to all the wonderful research that's out there. Um, and any of the listeners that want to share their success stories um, ways in which their culture has changed, please reach out to me. Um, at the end of the episode, we'll have the number for the Google voicemail and I'll get back to you. Um, I think the more that we share our personal experiences and successes, the more we can understand and relate to each other in the same struggles that we're all facing. Heidi, thank you so much. Any last thoughts for the ICU community? Last thoughts for the ICU community. Uh, you know, I spoke to Polly Bailey when I was starting our program in 2008, and she was a beacon of hope and light because she was the, one of the very few people who was actively engaged in walking mechanically ventilated patients. I don't believe she ever defined early mobility as anything other than that. And she said to me when we were getting started, she said, and I've done a lot of different things in my life. She said, this is going to be the hardest thing you ever do, but do it anyway. <laughs> and I, I, she's such a wonderful person. I just kind of thought, okay, I believe you. Yikes. Um, but I'm so grateful that she said that to me because yes, it's been the hardest thing I've ever done because of the barriers, because of the negative pushback, because of, you know, you feel a little bit like you're swimming upstream sometimes. Um, but I, I keep Polly Bailey in my head because she succeeded in achieving what I hope for for all of our patients. Her patients are awake and walking down the hall daily, and it's just another routine thing for them to do. And I keep that in mind, her thoughts, then it is hard that, yeah, it's going to be hard, but that's okay. The reward is far greater than the amount of effort you have to put in. I think that is 
The perfect final note. Um, I think anyone that attempts to change these deeply ingrained practices will find all the barriers that you have found. Um, but coming from the awake and walking ICU, I add my witness that it's possible and it is so fulfilling and it is the standard of care that should be out there. And so thank you for all of your strong work and all of your advocacy in moving our culture towards that. Heidi, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Kaylee. It was really great talking to you. Thank you. We'll, we'll continue to be in touch and everyone should join her on Twitter. She's great. <laughs> Thanks, Kaylee. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.